0: .com radio studios. Good evening everyone. Welcome to another Thursday night edition of the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. It is a pleasure having you along here tonight on ultimatesportstalk.com. We have got a lot to talk about here this evening. It has been a very interesting and frustrating week, let me tell you personally. But nonetheless, I'm not going to get into that tonight because if I did I could actually take up about three hours rather than just one hour of what's been going on with me over the past few days. But I'm not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to talk sports tonight. The Tigers have gotten rid of Dave Dombrowski, and boy, would I love to see him with the Cleveland Indians. David Price and Troy Tulowitzki have added some punch to the Toronto Blue Jays lineup and also on the field against the Kansas City Royals. We're going to talk about those suspensions. Ronda Rousey, boy, has she got a punch. And Floyd Mayweather has no punch. But he's going for 50-0. and 0. We're going to talk about that and more coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... It's probably the most grandest of all the enshrinements into a Hall of Fame. Basketball doesn't match up anywhere near the NFL. Major League Baseball comes close, but still... Doesn't match up. Every year, first weekend in August, it is always the NFL Enshrinement Weekend. Highlighted by the NFL Hall of Fame game in Canton, Ohio. Just about 30 minutes from the beautiful and palatial Ultimate Sports Talk studios. And this weekend is no different as the NFL will be enshrining more players into the Hall of Fame. Eight people are going in. Pittsburgh Steelers running back, Jerome Bettis. He also played for the St. Louis Rams at one point. Wide receiver, Tim Brown of the Oakland Raiders. Defensive end, Charles Haley, the San Francisco 49ers and Dallas Cowboy. Great. Linebacker, Junior Seau from the San Diego Chargers and the New England Patriots, where he played his last few years. Guard, Will Shields. Center, Mick Tinglehoff of the Minnesota Vikings. And longtime executives, Bill Polian and Ron Wolfe about time those two get in the Hall of Fame game will be Sunday night you can watch it on NBC where the Pittsburgh Steelers will be playing the Minnesota Vikings the Hall of Fame recently told Fox Sports in a story that I've been covering now for the last few days that the daughter of the late junior Sayout will be allowed to be part of the onstage interview after Sayout's bust is unveiled Additionally, the Hall has invited Sidney and Seau's three sons on stage to unveil their father's bust, which is absolutely fantastic, and I think it had everything to do with the public pressure that was put on the Hall of Fame. The Hall, of course, they had previously denied the Seau family the opportunity to speak live on stage because of the fact that the Seau family is suing the NFL due to the CTE scan that their father had undergone after his suicide. Now, the order of enshrinement, which will begin on Saturday night at 7 o'clock, and that will be at Fawcett Stadium in Canton, right next door to the Hall of Fame. That will include the first enshrinee will be Ron Wolfe, then comes Charles Haley, Mick Tinglehoff, Shields, Bill Polian, Tim Brown, Junior Seau, and then Jerome Bettis. And Bettis probably deserves it because the Steelers are playing in the game, and of course the Hall is only just a couple hours away from Pittsburgh Stadium. So that is what is happening this weekend in Canton as far as the Hall of Fame is concerned. But off the field, the NFL continues to make news, and this week, where would this show be if we didn't talk about the Tom Brady situation with the NFL and his constant fighting going on with Roger Goodell and the league? I'm convinced the NFL has absolutely no idea what is going on in this Brady situation. First of all, they came to the wrong conclusion that any measurement under 12.5 pounds per square inch was an act of cheating. Nobody actually knew in the NFL office that a ball could lose air. How many times have you played with a ball when you were a young kid and the ball lost air? But unfortunately, Roger Goodell, who's gone through years of education, including law school, Couldn't figure out that a ball could lose air. Secondly, the league couldn't understand why Tom Brady and Patriot staffer John Jastrinski, after news of the scandal broke, actually wanted to talk to each other. They were convinced that no matter what, that was an evidence of guilt between the two. That they would have not spoken on the phone had there not been anything to hide. If they were innocent, they'd both want to know how in the world this situation happened. And then come the emails. The Patriots upped it a notch this week when they started releasing emails between themselves and the NFL front office, letting them know exactly how they felt about how the NFL front office was leaking information and how they were trying to spin this story. If you think spin is only alive in Washington, D.C., Uh Uh-uh. It happens with Roger Goodell and the NFL offices on a daily, daily process. It just goes on all the time. And on Tuesday, well, the NFL filed its brief, or I should say the NFLPA filed its brief in the Brady case, and according to court documents, it included 457 pages of transcripts of the appeal hearing between Brady and Roger Goodell. Now, the NFL and NFLPA previously agreed to a confidentiality agreement, but Judge Richard Berman, in requesting 15-page reply briefs from each side, said he has always had considerable difficulty approving any sealed documents due to the keen public interest in these matters and the public's right to know. Plus the fact the way things get leaked out of the NFL, I think the judge was probably trying to make sure that he was the one that leaked the information rather than the NFL, and it might spurs some public controversy so the biggest issue well the evidence against Brady used by the league to uphold the four-game suspension now a lot of that is now in the public thanks to the filing of the entire appeal situation and according to these transcripts Tom Brady was told that he would never be penalized for not turning over his phone now that's exactly what Roger Goodell said He was being penalized for, being uncooperative. And that was one of the things that was talked about, was the fact that Brady destroyed his phone rather than turned it over to the NFL. Brady and Commissioner Roger Goodell also discussed inflation ranges and the process that goes into preparing game balls. Brady said that the only time that he's ever been informed of a ball situation was after week seven in a game against the New York Jets where he thought the balls were rather spongy. But that was it. So here we go. He said, she said, he said, she said. Where do we go with this? Nobody really knows. But my gut feeling is, like I said last week, that what will happen in this situation is they will come to a settlement. Tom Brady is going to probably pay a big fine. He won't be suspended for any situation at all. And... Things will just go on as normal as far as the NFL is concerned. Now, what isn't normal is the fact that the NFL, whether it is intentional or not, my gut feeling is there is some collusion going on among NFL owners. Now, is it from the front office of the NFL? Hard to say. But I believe that there is some collusion going on in the NFL. Now, why is that happening? Simply over the Ray Rice situation. Ray Rice spoke on ESPN's Outside the Lines a couple of days ago, and he remains hopeful that he can return to playing in the NFL, but acknowledged that public opinion after his domestic violence incident presents a unique obstacle to his comeback attempt.
1: I realize that, you know, we do live in a society where public opinion matters, and I totally respect that. And domestic violence is real. It happens every 12 seconds as we speak. And, you know, I made a lifelong commitment you know, to my wife, to my daughter, to the survivors of domestic violence to, you know, go out there and not only help, but share my story so that men can make better decisions. That was the worst decision I've ever made in my life. You know, I'm just, you know, I try to, you know, hold it together when I'm thinking about it. But, you know, it's something that, you know, I have to go out there and help people. I have to make them understand that, you know, domestic violence, you know, of any kind, but man or woman is not allowed in our society. It's the number one thing that if you're told growing up, you know, a man should never put his hands on a woman. And, you know, that that just, you know, that bothers me. I've never, you know, been played through an injury, but I think that has, um you know, little reason to why, you know, I'm playing football. You know, I think injury is part of the game, and I think that, you know, you know, I treated this year, you know, for me being out, you know, as an injury year, but except for, you know, and that wasn't physical, it was mental. it was everything about rehabilitating myself to be the best husband, father, and go out there and share my story so you know I'm not afraid to say right now that I feel like i've you know I'm a rehabilitated man, you know I took this year as an injury you know to my you know to like mentally you know mentally i just you know I went through a lot, and I can understand you know. Some some people probably will never forgive my actions, but I think that every step that I took going forward right now, you know, over time, you know, I want to be able to rewrite the script to tell my daughter, you know, that daddy made the worst decision of his life, but this is what I did going forward. And to the survivors of domestic violence, I understand how real it is, and I don't want to ever, you know, take that for granted because it's a real issue in our society. And, you know, my video, you know, Put the light out there. If you have never seen what domestic violence looks like and you look at my video, I can understand why, you know, some people would never forgive me.
0: Rice was being interviewed by Jamel Hill of Outside the Lines. and He's being politically correct when he says he thinks that the NFL teams have been hesitant to sign him because of the surveillance video that led to his eventual suspension. But Rice also considers himself a rehabilitated man and that he's tried to convey that point to potentially interested teams. Now, one team right now that would be perfect for Ray Rice would be the Houston Texans. And who better to give Ray Rice a second chance to than Bill O'Brien? The reason being the Texans are without Adrian Foster. He is going to undergo surgery for a groin injury. He's going to be out for four to six weeks, the first four to six weeks of the NFL season. It would be a perfect situation for Ray Rice to come in, and he would fit into that offense extremely well because Bill O'Brien has seen him play. And why should the Texans be the one to give him a second chance? Bill O'Brien is used to second chances. He was the first coach with Penn State to take over after they received Their suspension over the Jerry Sandusky situation. So why wouldn't Bill O'Brien be open to giving a player a second chance, such as Ray Rice? It's the perfect scenario. They need him, he needs them. Bill O'Brien, the perfect coach to bring him in. But they won't. And the only logical reason is that there is some sort of collusion going on around the NFL. Can it be proven? No. You will never, and people will swear up and down that there is no collusion between the owners on trying to sign Ray Rice or not, but you cannot prove that it's not true either. Rice has said on multiple occasions that he wants to hang them up the right way, but also emphasize that he understands playing in the NFL is a privilege. You know, Rice deserves a second chance. Do I agree with what he did? Absolutely not. But he seems to be saying the right things, doing the right things, and I think what he has done is he has taken this situation and he's highlighted it for the NFL. He has taken it and made it a mainstream problem with solutions, and that's the best thing that you can ask for out of an athlete. He has proven to be a role model for domestic violence in a bad way, but in a good way too. And the NFL would be smart to give this guy a second chance, but he just may be too hot to handle. One note on the Cleveland Browns here this evening, the Browns linebacker Barkevious Mingo underwent arthroscopic surgery on his right knee today to repair torn cartilage. The recovery time for the procedure usually totals around a month, and with five weeks to go until the season opener, it's possible the Browns could have Mingo back for the game, which is against the New York Jets, but it's highly doubtful. Coach Mike Pettine said Mingo's injury came on a single play in practice, but he wasn't sure which one. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along here this evening. And let's talk. Let's discuss the art of pugilism. Yes, pugilism, which is the battle with your hands. And now it's the battle with your feet because of what's going on in the women's MMA division and what's happening in the boxing world. Well, as everybody knows, Ronda Rousey, just over, oh, five days ago, defeated Beth Correa in 34 seconds to defend her MMA middleweight title, the bantamweight title. Well, that was the sixth time that Rousey has won the title. And if you look at her last four fights, well, they've only gone a total of 130 seconds. 130 seconds. Her last... Three fights have gone a total of 64 seconds. They've been amazing. She is obviously the most dominant performer in sports today. You think LeBron James is dominant in the NBA? He doesn't hold a candle to Ronda Rousey. Do you think Peyton Manning or Aaron Rodgers are dominant in the NFL? They don't even do what Ronda Rousey does. Floyd Mayweather, and I'm going to get into Mayweather in just a little bit, he doesn't do. He couldn't hold a candle to Ronda Rousey. He is so intimidated by Ronda Rousey, he wants to let people think that he doesn't even know who Rousey is. Mayweather is only concerned about his image. And again, as I said, I'll get into that in just a few minutes. But if you had the opportunity to see the video of what Rousey did to Beth Correa in Rio de Janeiro last Saturday night, if you actually got the pay-per-view or you found it online and got a chance to see it, it was amazing. First of all, there were six fights beforehand in the pay-per-view. So the Rousey-Correa fight did not even get underway until after 1.15 in the morning here in the United States. Rousey came out with absolute venom in her face, when they met in the middle of the octagon on Saturday night to get the referee instructions, you could have pierced Correa with the look that Rousey was giving her. With the comments that Correa had made just a couple of months beforehand that Rousey shouldn't commit suicide after Correa would beat her, just obviously a dig at the fact that Rousey's father committed suicide when she was a younger woman. That absolutely fueled the fire that Rousey needed. After her win, after she got done celebrating with her friends and family, Ronda Rousey sat down and had an interview on what she thought about the fight and what's next. Well, Ronda,
2: so much for prolonging this thing. Is a part of you a little disappointed it only lasted 34 seconds?
3: Um, I mean, once you're in the moment, you're not really thinking about it too much, and... um I mean, it's not my fault. I mean, I, I, I was I was ready to go longer.
2: <laughs> you were very emotional after the win. Why?
3: Um. Well, to hear everybody like chanting, I don't know. I like I didn't accept the, expect the reception that I got, and it was like one of those heart bursting moments where you know everyone knows I'm a big crier. I was trying my best not to. I really was. So yeah, it was. I I sometimes I can't believe this is actually my life. You know.
2: Roddy Piper, big inspiration, influence—the guy who allowed you to use the Rowdy nickname—suddenly passed away. What did that do for you mentally leading up to this fight?
3: I actually got a chance to like sit down and talk to him for like a couple of hours before this fight, and went and did like a, a, I didn't have time for anything. I was like, no, I have to go see Roddy. I had to go to Piper's pit, and then um, we talked for hours and. And I, I even told him, as I promised him, I was like, I'm gonna do the name proud, I'm gonna do you proud, I'm gonna go beat this chick. I told them that. And um, I just um, I hope him and my dad had a good time watching it together.
2: Are you the kind that believes in that sort of thing? Do you almost want to believe that they were watching down on you and enjoying this?
3: I'd like to think so.
2: So now you run through Betch, once again, 34 seconds. Your last three fights have lasted 64 seconds combined. Is this fun for you? Like, do you feel like you're being challenged here?
3: Uh, yeah, I felt like it's a challenge that I should be able to get a knockout like that, you know? I mean, I I, I want to silence every kind of criticism one at a time, and I think I silenced one tonight.
2: This kind of feels like you're a Rumble in the Jungle, Thrill in Manila moment, right? You went into enemy territory. Do, do, you, do you view it that way?
3: It, it, it kind of felt cool like that. It was a mix between Rumble in the Jungle and Rocky IV. It was actually pretty awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know, man. I I, have, I don't have any words. So I don't have any words.
2: Dana said last week, it's Misha Tate next. Everyone wants to see the Cyborg fight. What do you prefer?
3: I prefer who makes weight and doesn't do drugs. You know, the the, the fight's there for Cyborg. She can make 145, pump full of steroids. She can move down without them. And I'm not going anywhere, and I don't see why everyone acts like, I have so much to prove, and she's the one that has to prove that she can actually fight legitimately.
2: But if need be, you don't mind doing the Misha fight again?
3: Not at all. That's what the fans want to see, and she's the number one contender. You know, she deserves another shot, and she's going to get beat again. But you know, um, beating up Misha seems to be good for both of our careers, so why not?
2: And when do you want to do this?
3: I would like to be on the on the Aldo the McGregor card if possible. I think that would be really cool. But I mean, it's it's, it's up to it's up to the UFC, not me.
0: See, Rousey is in a spot right now where she's in a danger zone. She almost has to manufacture something for her to get herself going to create momentum for herself in every fight because they have been so easy she has come out she has beaten three of her last four opponents with arm bars and the big question that everybody asked rousey was could she actually win a fight just simply by punching well that was answered on saturday night there was absolutely no doubt that Rousey was not going for the armbar. She was going straight at the head of Beth Correa. And that was the way that she was going to fight. At the beginning of the fight, Rousey came right out of her corner and went after Correa. Correa was on the defensive from the word go. Now, I actually thought that Correa would dance around the octagon for a little while just to try to get her feet and to calm Rousey down somewhat, because everybody knew Rousey was going to come out and try to get the quick knockout, just simply over the things that Correa had said. But Correa actually went right at Rousey also, and when Rousey came at her with such vengeance, Correa then decided to backtrack and ended up against the wall of the octagon, and that's when Rousey took advantage. Now, Rousey did take a couple of hits from Correa. She was able to land a couple of smacks, against Rousey's face. But Rousey didn't let it bother her. It was like she was in another zone, another world. And she immediately went after Correa, hit her with a dozen shots to the body, to the head, back to the body, back to the head, until finally she got the right that hit Correa against her temple, and it knocked Correa out. She went down, her face broke her fall on the mat, and it was over. 34 seconds into the fight, Rousey had won for the sixth time her UFC Bantamweight Championship. UFC president and owner Dana White talked about what he thought Rousey did in the fight and just what can beat her.
2: Dana, Ronda Rousey did it again, this time in 34 seconds. How do you put this, this phenomenon into words? You don't see women knock women out like that. The
4: way that she knocked her out, she can do it all. Um... Rhonda just gets better every time she fights. Tonight's fight is trending bigger than UFC
2: 189.
4: Wow. Yeah, tonight is a massive night for, I mean, I don't know if you were watching, but more celebrity tweeting about Rhonda's fight tonight than ever in the history of the UFC. All the numbers are trending bigger than 189, and uh, she's a superstar, man.
2: Why do you think she connects with people more so than perhaps any other fighter in your organization?
4: She's the most badass woman anybody's ever seen i mean she's She's a phenomenon people are 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 enthralled with her. people are drawn to her and for a reason she's a she's a legitimate,
2: unbelievable incredible talent and you can also make the case that she's a pioneer she's a trailblazer as well. We don't see this often. Are fighters fighting her? the wrong way? Are they doing something wrong, in your opinion? <laughs> yeah, well, you didn't want
4: to go to the ground with her. You want to stand up with her. <laughs> you stand up, you go to the ground no matter where you go. The thing that people have to understand about Ronda Rousey is she came into this sport very green. She gets better every time she fights. She's still growing and learning as a fighter, and that's scary.
2: She seemed very emotional. After the win, and of course, there was a lot going on leading up to this fight. What was her mindset like? Were, were you worried that maybe she would prolong this play games and not go for the kill when, when need be? I mean, yeah, I mean, she could have she
4: threw her. She could have tried to go to the ground. She wanted to stand, and she wanted to bang with her, and she did, and she knocked her out. You don't see women knock women out like that, you know? Women will usually, you know, they'll go down to the ground, or she knocked her out. When, when, you, when we watched the replay... You heard her head hit the ground very hard, and uh, Ronda Ronda is an absolute beast, man.
0: It was a devastating knockout over Correa, and now you haven't heard anything out of Correa as far as her loss in the UFC pay-per-view 190. When it was all said and done, the Brazilian crowd that was right behind Correa throughout the entire match beforehand during the match, they continued their assault against Rousey afterwards. Also, when it was all done, the Brazilian crowd continued to chant Correa's name, but they did like happened in Rocky IV when he fought Drago. The Russian crowd came around to finally being behind Rocky, and that's what happened as time went on in Rio de Janeiro. They finally got behind Rousey and gave her a standing ovation the thing about it was was that rousey didn't give the kind of speech that rocky did at the end of rocky 4 no but she did sit there and say for those of you who booed me i still love you for those of you who cheered me i love you even more so for the sixth time ronda rousey is the ufc bantamweight champion she is the pay-per-view queen You could call her the pay-per-view king if you wanted to, but she's a woman. But nevertheless, she is the meal ticket right now for the UFC. There's no men fighters out there for the UFC that they can put forward. There's nobody out there that they can put forward. It's Ronda Rousey or nothing. And that is what Dana White is betting on. He's tried to get Gina Carano to come out of retirement and fight Rousey. He knows that would be a gate maker. But Carano won't do it. She wants to stay at a higher weight and Rousey will not go above her weight. And then there's Cyborg. That is the question. Will Cyborg actually come out and fight Ronda Rousey? That is what Dana White wants. Dana White has come out this week and said that if Cyborg... Would come down from her 145 weight to 135. He's ready to sign her and put together the fight between her and Ronda Rousey.
2: Last week in Chicago, you said Misha Tate was going to get a title shot. Do you want to see that third fight? Do you feel like the public wants to see that third fight? Well, if you don't want
4: to see that fight, what fight do you want to see? I mean, Misha's the number one uh, ranked fighter in the world in that weight class. She, uh, she looked awesome against Jessica I. She dropped her twice in that fight. Um, you know, Ronda Misha is always going to be fun. I think.
2: Not sure if that was a rhetorical question, but I have a response to. Who else do you want to see?
4: She, she didn't make the weight yet,
2: but that's still there. It's still a possibility, right? Yeah. That's what everyone is saying. The
4: day she makes the weight and does what she's supposed to do, that fight's on. She wants that fight. Everybody, you don't. You think I don't want that no, fight to I happen? Don't. That fight, that fight. Now I'm changing my mind on that fight. I think that fight does two and a half
2: million buys.
4: I think that that fight is massive.
2: And of course, for those that don't know who we're talking about, we're talking about Cyborg. Do you feel like you can convince her to forego the steps and go to 135 straight, or do you have to see her fight at 135 before coming to the UFC?
4: Yeah, I, she has to. She has to make the weight. Okay. She has to make the weight. She has to fight, and she has to be healthy. She came out, and her her team that she built around her said some crazy things, and. She needs
0: to go out, and she needs to make the weight and compete at that weight, and she can come right here and fight Rhonda. Christiane Cyborg Justino, well, what are you going to do? Of course, everybody knows she's had the problem with the steroids. She was suspended for a complete year. Nothing has materialized because Cyborg just refuses to go down to Rousey's 135-pound Bantamweight level. Now, this is the dream matchup, and Dana White knows it. He knows that there is nobody at 135 right now that Ronda Rousey can be beaten by. Nobody. Not Kat Zingano. Certainly not Correa. That's the way it is right now in the UFC. So he's got two choices. Somehow, some way, talk Carano into coming out of the movie star dream that she is in right now and come back into the octagon and fight Rousey, or somehow get Cyborg Justino down. To the 135 weight. Either way, nobody seems interested in getting into the octagon with Rousey. Not Carano and not Cyborg. Both of them will talk a good game but neither one of them wants to crawl into the ring. Now, according to Rousey she says she will fight anybody, anytime. The only person she will not fight is Floyd Mayweather. She's come out and said that for her own reasons. And I agree with her. I don't think that a man fighting a woman is the type of thing that we should pit against, especially in the sport of boxing and fighting. But according to Rousey, Rousey says she fights in the UFC, in the 135-pound division. Now, if Cyborg can fight at 145 pump full of steroids, then she can make the weight without the steroids, just like everybody else. Obviously, a dig at Cyborg. Well, Justino, who did... Test positive for the steroids after scoring a knockout win as the Strike Force Featherweight Champion in December of 2011. Then she was suspended for a year. Well, then, Cyborg blamed that result on a diet supplement given to her by a former coach and has not failed random tests since. Now, Justino has threatened Rousey with legal action just over what was said. But Who knows what's going to happen here. This is, as I said, the dream matchup that Dana White wants. He wants these two in the octagon because he knows putting them together in a pay-per-view may, and it may, just break all sorts of pay-per-view records. It's obvious. Rousey's the one that's carrying the pay-per-views now. She's better than anybody the WWE has. She's better than anybody, and I mean anybody, in the boxing world. There is no doubt she is a bigger draw right now than Floyd Mayweather. But will they fight? It would be a popular fight. But one thing about it, it is not likely to happen any time soon. Now, as far as boxing is concerned, I have gone on record and told you that I am not a Floyd Mayweather fan. I think the guy is a complete joke. I don't think he's that great a fighter. I think if you put him back into the 70s or 80s, he doesn't win 50% of his fights. The only way he would win more than 50% of his fights back in the 70s and 80s, and I'm serious about this, is if he did what he does today, scheduled chumps. And that is just what he has done for his supposed last fight. Now, anybody who thinks that Floyd Mayweather on September 12th Meeting Andre Berto will be his last fight at the MGM Grand Garden in a pay-per-view bout distributed by Showtime is nuts. And I'll tell you why. Boxers have a tremendous ego, an absolute ego. And there is no way that Floyd Mayweather is going to get to 50-0, tie Rocky Marciano for the all-time record for an undefeated champion, and then walk away. There is no way. First of all, his ego won't let him do it. Secondly, the networks like Showtime, CBS, NBC, you name it, HBO, whomever, whomever it is out there, will not let him retire at 50-0. and 0. No matter what Mayweather tells you, no. He is going to come back for one more fight because he's going to beat Berto. Come on. Berto is a chump. Now, Berto started out his career... he was a great fighter, and then he got fat. He began his career, won his version of the welterweight title, but then once he got wealthy, he decided to get lazy. Because since 2011, Berto is just 3-3 in his last six bouts. He hasn't reminded anybody of anybody. Everybody thought early in his career that he looked like Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, he doesn't look anything like Sugar Ray Leonard. Now, what's going to happen in this fight on September the 12th? Well, it's going to be a grand farewell for Floyd Mayweather. He'll probably be out of the fight game for about a year. And then when Manny Pacquiao's shoulder is completely rehabbed, and he's 40 years old, and Mayweather is 37 or 38, They'll bring Mayweather out of retirement to face Manny Pacquiao, and it'll be the geriatric dream matchup of the century. Almost like it was just four months ago when these two guys propped themselves up in the middle of the ring and went at each other. I don't like Floyd Mayweather. I think he is a joke as a champion. I think he's a joke as a person. I don't like the way that he handles women, and I think he is just – Character flawed. And boxing needs a better champion than Floyd Mayweather. But right now, that's what they're stuck with, is Floyd Mayweather. The guy that they really need is Keith Thurman. Now, Thurman is one of boxing's most exciting fighters. He's unbeaten. He holds the welterweight championship. He's managed by Al Heyman, the same man who directs Mayweather's career. Only Thurman has got character. That fight really, in all honesty, should have been easy to make. Except for one thing. Mayweather has never had an interest in fighting somebody that could even have a chance at beating him. There was no way in the world that Mayweather was going to agree to fighting Thurman. At an impromptu meeting with reporters on June 17th, Mayweather said he had narrowed his next opponent down to either Berto or Kareem Mayfield. He said he thought Thurman should face the 2012 Olympian Errol Spence Jr. next. But what did he do? He decided on Berto. Why, nobody knows. He won't answer that question. Nobody can reasonably argue that Berto did anything to earn this bout. Nothing. He had an upset win over unheralded Steve Upshur Chambers and Josito Lopez in his last two fights. But that's it. So what is Mayweather trying to prove other than he can go 50-0 against a chump? This is almost like watching Apollo Creed fight Rocky for the first time and everybody thinking it was just a joke. That's what this is. But Berto is no Rocky Balboa. Berto is no Sugar Ray Leonard. Berto is no Tommy Hearns. Berto is no Vladimir Klitschko. He is nowhere near the caliber of these people. And Floyd Mayweather is not the caliber of those fighters that I just read off to you either. But Floyd Mayweather will win this fight on September 12th. He'll go 50-0. And if you think he is going to go off into the sunset with a record of 50-0 tied with Rocky Marciano for the all-time record for boxing undefeated champions, well, put that bet in Vegas and just see if you win three years down the road. of year in the Major League Baseball season, every year, tensions start to rise, tempers start to fly, and there are a lot of things that go on on the field. Well, that is continuing on, this season is no different than any other, and when you look at what happened over the weekend in Toronto at Rogers Stadium between the Kansas City Royals and the Blue Jays, well, all you've got to see is even the umpires, suffer from it too because Jim Wolf, Angel Hernandez, and the rest of that crew absolutely botched what happened on Sunday in the Kansas City-Toronto game. I've got the Major League Baseball package. I love it. I can sit back and I can watch any team I want to on the Major League Baseball package. I would recommend it if you're a baseball fan. I can watch anybody. I can sit back and I can listen to opposing teams' announcers. I love listening to Dick Enberg. As the announcer of the San Diego Padres on TV, I get to hear Vin Scully do the Dodgers games on a regular basis. I think it's just absolutely great. I don't have to listen to Beavis and Butthead up in Cleveland do the Indians games all the time. I don't have to listen to Tom Brenneman, one of Mark Donahue on my Ohio Baseball Weekly show on Monday nights, one of his favorite announcers uh, of the Reds. It's just outstanding. And this weekend, I had the opportunity to watch the Kansas City-Toronto series. I started watching it on Saturday, and I continued watching it on Sunday. Because after the trade deadline last Friday, I am convinced that these are two of the best baseball teams that we have in MLB this year. Kansas City did a great job. They already had a great team. And they brought in Johnny Cueto from the Reds and Ben Zobris from Oakland. And that solidified their team. toronto on the other hand, they were floundering. They needed a shortstop and a starting pitcher, and what did they do? They went out and got Troy Tulowitzki from Colorado and David Price from the Detroit Tigers. They did an outstanding job building their team. Both teams did. Kansas City's the defending American League champion. They only lost in Game 7 of the World Series a year ago to the San Francisco Giants. They've improved their team. They may be the favorite in the American League again this year, but Toronto... They're nipping at the heels right now on a wild card spot. And they are going after the Yankees for the top spot in the American League East. But what happened on Sunday? Yeah, you could say that the players started it. It would have been good if the players could have finished it. But the umpires stuck their nose in it and screwed this one up royally. See, the first three games between, the Blue Jays and the Royals had A playoff-like atmosphere. Everybody was excited in Toronto. They had these new guys, David Price and Tulowitzki coming in. It was intense. It was fun. It was playoff-type baseball. And it included chin music, batters hit, benches clearing, three ejections on Sunday, including Blue Jays manager John Gibbons, and a heated exchange of words between the teams following the game. See, what happened was this, and I got to see it from beginning to end, so I know exactly what happened in this one. Royal starter Edison Volquez, who has got a reputation as it is, as a pitcher who is a headhunter, hit Josh Donaldson in the first inning in the left shoulder. And then in the third inning, he almost hit him again with a pitch near his head. Now, what happened was, and where the umpires first committed their biggest screw-up, was home plate umpire Jim Wolfe, issued a warning to both teams after Volquez had hit Donaldson in the shoulder. He didn't even give Toronto a chance to retaliate. Now, I think if an umpire is going to give a warning, it's got to be on the second situation, not the first. Unless something had happened during the series, which in this series, nothing had happened. But if an umpire is going to give a warning and tell both clubs that they can't throw at another batter intentionally... Then he's got to give the other team an opportunity to retaliate. Then issue the warnings. This isn't what happened. Jim Wolfe gave the warning in the first inning. And then in the third inning, when Volquez went after Donaldson's head, Wolfe stood there and just watched it happen. Didn't call a thing. Well, then later in the game, Royals reliever Ryan Madsen came into the ballgame and immediately hit Troy Tulowitzki in the arm. Still, nothing happened. Jim Wolf let it go. Then Josh Donaldson came to the plate, and he was nearly hit again up around the head by Ryan Madsen. And this started the entire situation. Donaldson turned around, walked away 20, 25 feet away from home plate, barking at Jim Wolf behind the plate, saying, You warned them in the first inning, and you're still not throwing anybody out. Up to this point, all of dilemma had been on behalf of Kansas City throwing at Toronto hitters. Toronto had not retaliated once up to this point. Josh Donaldson continued to argue with home plate umpire Jim Wolf, and that brought John Gibbons out of the third base dugout to argue with Jim Wolf. also. Well, immediately, Gibbons was thrown out of the game, and he talked about the dilemma the umpire created afterwards.
2: Well, see, yeah, that's that's what I don't get. You know, I mean, you know, Sanchez. You know, the umpire's not a pitching coach, but he, I'm sure he's seen the guy. He knows what his ball does, and it, it was it was down low. I don't think it was a whole hell of a lot different than those other pitches. Other than that, you know, he hit the guy,
0: nicked him, I guess. But
2: so, you know, I don't know. That's that, but that's a problem you get into sometimes, even when you issue warnings, because you know it it leads to things like that. And then there's that gray area. Well, was it or wasn't it?
0: After the Madsen incident, after that inning had ended, then came the eighth. And into the ball game came Aaron Sanchez, the Blue Jays reliever. He had two outs, two strikes on El Escobar, the third batter, and Sanchez hit him in the back leg around the kneecap. And immediately Jim Wolf comes out from behind home plate and throws Sanchez out of the game. He hadn't come close to throwing anybody out of the game on the previous five times that Kansas City had thrown at Toronto ballplayers. But on the one time, the one time that Kansas City gets hit in the entire game, Jim Wolfe throws out Sanchez, the Blue Jays pitcher. And that immediately meant that bench coach DeMarlo Hale was ejected also for arguing the rookie's ejection. But then the benches cleared. Both teams got out on the field. And what happened was John Gibbons came out of the locker room, out onto the field to try to control his players. That's a no-no. You cannot do that. And John Gibbons yesterday was given a one-game suspension by Major League Baseball. Now, the bad thing about it is, and where I think Major League Baseball has really dropped the ball on this one is that they gave a three-game suspension to Aaron Sanchez. And he also got an undisclosed fine. Unbelievable. I don't know what in the world Major League Baseball is thinking here. It's not an automatic suspension, but they gave him a three-game suspension. Now, Sanchez is going to appeal. And ESPN's baseball analyst, Pedro Gomez, talks about what this is. appeal will do and just how it will affect the Blue Jays
5: well Sanchez is appealing his suspension managers don't have quite the same luxury because the Players Association doesn't cover them in the case of Sanchez Major League Baseball deemed that he intentionally threw at Alcides Escobar there that he intentionally threw at Kansas City Royals players and in appealing it he is going to be allowed to play It gets a little tricky because players sometimes try to manipulate this and say, okay, when we're playing a lesser opponent, because the Twins have a winning record. They've had a very good first hundred games of the season. So he's probably thinking, I'd rather be available for the Twins. The problem is that play the Yankees in New York this weekend. Major League Baseball very well could say, okay, you want to appeal? Let's come into the office here at, (laughs) at Park Avenue and tell us why we should hear your appeal. And at that point... He will give his appeal. A three-game suspension could very well turn into two. But at that point, he will start serving it immediately. The Yankees, Blue Jays is a much bigger series. If somehow they can manage to hold it off until Monday when they play Oakland, you could see him dropping the appeal on Monday when they play Oakland and serving it against the A's, who are in last place in the American League West. So it is a juggling act. It could end up backfiring in this case because the Blue Jays play in New York the Blue Jays are tired of missing out on the postseason. And that's the reason that they went out and got a David Price to be the number one ace for the Blue Jays, which is something, by the way, that the Blue Jays have severely been lacking. They haven't had that number one gun, so to speak, like other clubs have. So that gives them something in the American League East that nobody else in the American League East has right now. Kevin Gosman could be that guy with Baltimore, but he's been injured a lot this season just coming back. Um, And What it says about getting Troy Tulewitzki is, look, we know we can score runs, but we want to score even more runs, because if our pitching does falter, we're going to try to mash our way into the playoffs, which is a formula that can work, especially in a division where parity all of a sudden has taken over. It's become a much more even division.
0: This is a bad situation. This is something that Major League Baseball really should start taking a look at. I really believe that if the players are allowed to control this and take care of it on the field, that it will take the umpires out of the middle of it. But this was a situation that could have been easily rectified had Jim Wolfe, the home plate umpire, showed enough guts to actually either throw Edison Volquez out of the game in the third inning when he went up around Josh Donaldson's head, or thrown Ryan Madsen out of the game when he hit Troy Tulowitzki. But they didn't do that. They let this situation grow and fester. And it became an embarrassment. And that's when the bench-clearing brawl happened. But something's got to go on with Jim Wolfe. And I'm only going to say one other thing, like I did on Monday night's show on Ohio Baseball Weekly, which you can catch us again next Monday night at 9 o'clock with Mark Donahue and I. Shameless plug, I know. But nonetheless, you can catch us again next Monday night at 9. And I said this on last Monday night's show. All I have to tell you is, is that Angel Hernandez is on this umpiring crew. End of story. You're listening to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell, and a very, very surprising move on Tuesday by the Detroit Tigers. Unbelievably, they let go their general manager, CEO, and president of the organization, Dave Dombrowski. They just up and let him go. Now, Dombrowski did not have a contract after this year. He was in negotiations with Mike Illich. But for the past four years, the Tigers have really been hell-bent on winning the World Series because Illich is getting up there in age, and he wanted that World Series championship. And unfortunately, Dombrowski was never able to deliver a championship, although he did deliver a couple of World Series as far as the Tigers were concerned. So Dombrowski is out. And Al Avila, the father of Alex Avila, the Tigers catcher, is in as the general manager. Now, let me go on record as saying right now, this is the move the Cleveland Indians or Cincinnati Reds should make. And I know Mark and I will talk about it on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show this Monday night at 9 o'clock. This is the guy that both teams should hire. Dombrowski is an actual genius as a general manager. He has brought in players like J.D. Martinez. He has pulled off trades for Miguel Cabrera. He has managed to bring in free agents like Victor Martinez. He has signed pitchers to long-term contracts. He pulled off the trade for David Price. Now, certainly, this year has not gone the way the Tigers thought it would go. The Tigers are mired in third place in the American League Central Division. They are just about three games ahead of the Indians, as far as that's concerned, out of last place. But still... The Tigers were expected to win the Central Division. And when you lose Miguel Cabrera for such a long period of time, who is a Triple Crown champion and a past Most Valuable Player award winner, then you cannot expect your team to be that good. On top of that, the Tigers lost Max Scherzer from a year ago. And Justin Verlander is not having a Justin Verlander type year. As a matter of fact, Justin Verlander is not even having... A good year. He's having a terrible year, but he's coming in off of an injury, as was Victor Martinez to start the year. Nonetheless, Dave Dombrowski is out, and I think the Indians and Reds should go after him. Chris Antonetti should be gone as the GM of the Indians. Bring in Dave Dombrowski. Get rid of both Shapiro and Antonetti. The Reds have been rumored for weeks to be getting rid of their GM, Walt Jockety. Dombrowski would be the perfect solution to their organizational chaos. Bring him in and let him handle the Cincinnati Reds and or the Cleveland Indians. But so far, who knows what's happened. The Tigers, well, in Dombrowski's 14 years, they have made the World Series twice in 2006 and 2012, and they were eliminated in the American League Championship Series in 2011 and 2013. They won the American League Central Division Championship, and who can forget that he was the general manager of the Florida Marlins in 1997 when they won the World Series over my Cleveland Indians. I'll never forget it. Detroit Free Press sports writer Anthony Fennec goes through all the big news out of Comerica Park and the change at the top of the Tigers on Tuesday.
6: Reading between the lines that Dombrowski was planning to come back next year, obviously that was not the case. Uh, the timing was very inauspicuous. It was uh, very shocking. We we got here. The, the clubhouse did not open. It usually opens at 3.35 for 7.05 p.m. games. It didn't open. Dombrowski was seen walking out with his son Landon. And then at 4.05 came the news release that he had been released from his contract. He was not under contract for next year, and it didn't seem like anything was imminent on that front. He would not comment on his status. But a big day, probably the biggest day in the past decade, for the Tigers organization, Al He is the main man, and he now gets his chance after 24 years in the big leagues as a coach, a scout, and an executive to put his stamp on the Tigers franchise. It seems like the right time for this kind of move given their trades of the past week when they brought in six prospects, five of them pitchers. seems like they're in a little bit of a rephasing kind of mode. We might never know what happened with Dombrowski and Illich in terms of the contract extension talks, how far they went, why this breakup happened, but it seemed, on my end, like it was a little bit of a mutual parting of ways. Dabrowski's gonna have many suitors in the offseason. He is gonna be one of the hottest free agents on the market to go along with the likes of Johnny Cueto, David Price, some of these big guys because he simply is one of the best executives in the game. A couple of names to keep your eye on would be Boston, Larry Lucchino is stepping down at the end of the year, and Anaheim interim GM Bill Stoneman is not expected to continue in his role and actually hired Dombrowski back in the day in Montreal. Avila, for his part, he ran things smoothly in his first meeting with reporters. He committed to manager Brad Ausmus for the rest of the season and said that he has full confidence in offness, but everything he noted will be reevaluated in the off season. One one thing to note here though, Avila's a rookie general manager. Dave dabrowski has been doing this for the better part of thirty years. Avila's a rookie, there are going to be some growing pains despite the fact that he learned from Dabrowski, one of his best friends in the business, and a guy he's worked under for a long, long time. But simply he's a rookie, Dabrowski's a veteran, so with that is the the differences in experience that eventually will show their hand one way or another. One thing that Avila brings to the table that I feel like is very important in this day and age with baseball is his experience with Latin players and his ability to find that talent out of Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, Cuba. He is the first Cuban-born general manager in baseball history. He found Miguel Cabrera. He found J.D. Martinez. Those are two good players to hang your hat on.
0: So now that Dabrowski is out, Where does he go? He's a free agent, like you heard Fennec say. Where does he go? I'd like to see him go to the Reds or the Indians, but that's probably not going to happen. They're not going to spend all that money to bring in a high-priced general manager like Dombrowski will want to be. But where does he go? Well, there are two spots right now that are going to be looking for general managers at the end of the year and presidents of their organization, the Toronto Blue Jays and the Los Angeles Angels. And you could really throw in the Boston Red Sox also, because Larry Lucchino is stepping down as the president of the Red Sox. You could slink, you could just put Dombrowski into that position, and it would be just like going home. But nonetheless, those are the two teams that he is going to be most closely rumored to be going to. Bill Stoneman's not going to stick around with the Angels, as you heard Fennec say. And the Toronto Blue Jays are looking for a good GM. And that's a good situation. So he's got... Ample opportunity to go someplace where he has the chance to win, and that's what we'll see Dombrowski probably do. Well, now, Al Avila, he's going to get the opportunity to run the Tigers. He'll be the new GM. We'll see how he goes. And a sad story coming out of the National Baseball Congress World Series over the weekend, and this is really a bad situation in Kansas. A nine-year-old boy, Kaiser Carlisle, was hit with a bat during the baseball game over the weekend, and he died. He was the bat boy for the liberal BJ's team, and he was accidentally struck on Saturday by the on-deck batter who hit him during a warm-up swing as the boy was retrieving a bat. This batter, who they haven't come out and said who he was, he's got to be completely devastated by this. Supposedly, the bat collided with Kaiser, who was wearing a helmet, he was wearing a helmet. That's one of the things that baseball has really taken a stand on, that these kids and base coaches, everyone that's on the field, outside of defensive players, need to be wearing a helmet, and Kaiser was. But then, after he got hit, he took a few steps backwards and fell. He, As I said, he was the bat boy for the team. This National Baseball Congress World Series League is a summer league for college players, and Obviously, there's no video as to what happened here. But nonetheless, this is just a bad situation. And I don't know how you would actually try to rectify this. It was simply an accident. But our hearts and prayers go out to the family of Kaiser Carlisle. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks for joining us here this evening. Don't forget, coming up Monday night, It'll be the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. Mark Donahue and I will talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. That begins at 9 o'clock on Monday evening. And I want to let you know that on August 28th, we are beginning our coverage of high school football here on UltimateSportsTalk.com. We'll be bringing you on Friday night, August 28th, the first of 10 games or more with the Wayndale Golden Bears from Apple Creek, Ohio. That will begin at 7 o'clock on that Friday night, August 28th. Our pregame show is at 6.30, but we're also going to have a new segment called Golden Bear Rewind. And that is where we will play the last 30 minutes of the previous week's game, beginning an hour before the kickoff. So that will begin at 6 o'clock. So be sure to join us then as our coverage of high school football begins for the second consecutive year on August 28th. Friday night at seven o'clock with the kickoff. Wayndale entertaining Tusky Valley. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, as always, our thanks to you for listening here this evening. I'm Dave Mitchell. Join us again next Thursday night with another Ultimate Sports Talk show. Until then, have a good weekend, everybody, and a good week. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good
1: night.